Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about how we doubled human life expectancy in the last 150 years with best-selling author Stephen Johnson. Then you'll learn about impossible quasi-crystals that were formed from the first nuclear detonation. Let's satisfy some curiosity. It's no secret that human life expectancy has made big increases in the last few centuries, and they didn't happen by accident. Today's guest is going to tell us how our longer lives are a result of incredible accomplishments in science and public health. Accomplishments that, by the way, we hardly ever notice. Stephen Johnson is the best-selling author of 13 books, along with this latest entitled Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer. We started our conversation by asking him why he wrote this book. There's a funny thing about progress in health and medicine that makes it different from other forms of you know, technological progress, say, right? So you can look at your smartphone or you can look at a skyscraper or a satellite and say, hey, look, I can see this tangible object there in front of me that is a sign of progress. But with health, particularly as it relates to the length of our lives, the progress is actually measured in non-events in a weird way. It's measured in things that didn't happen. So the smallpox infection that you didn't die of when you were two because we eradicated smallpox from the globe or the cholera infection you didn't get from drinking water because we chlorinated drinking water, you know, 120 years ago. Those are all things that we don't tend to think about because <laughs> they didn't happen. <laughs> but our overall health and the progress of people living longer lives you know, is basically the result of all these interventions that we've kind of quietly made behind behind the scenes. And so what I've been trying to do with this project is basically say, hey, let's go back and tell those stories and remind ourselves of just how dangerous it was to be alive in the world just 100 years ago or 150 years ago, and how much healthier we are and how much safer we are, even in the middle of a pandemic today. And what kind of life expectancy increase are we talking here? I mean, it's a, it's an amazing number. So first off, there's a long history to this, which is pretty amazing. I, and this is one of the things that I found the most fascinating in doing the research. Our best estimates are that as a species, our life expectancy was remarkably stable for the entirety of <laughs> civilization, dating back to you know pre-agricultural times, um, all the way into the around 1800. And at that point, basically life expectancy was about 35. Now that number, which seems shockingly low, we should understand what that really means. That means that overall the average for the population was 35. And a large part of that came from the fact that about 40% of children died before reaching adulthood. So if you had five kids, on average, two of them would die in childhood or in, you know, in, in infancy. On top of that, though, people today now are living longer. You know, there were 70-year-olds back then um, and 80-year-olds back then. They were far less common than they are today. But the overall average was kept down by the number of childhood deaths as well. So up until about 1800, that was the reality of life all around the world. A hundred years ago in the United States, at the end of the Spanish flu, life expectancy was 41. Today, Globally, life expectancy is 72. That's for the entire planet. And in the United States, it's around 78. In some countries in the world, like Japan, it's pushing 85. So we have basically doubled the average human lifespan in the space of about a century. 
what are kind of some of the big tentpole things that we've done to get that doubling in life expectancy? Yeah, that's what the book is really is really wrestling with. You know, it's both to remind ourselves of this progress, but it's really like what what has driven this change? I mean, this is the most momentous kind of change you can imagine. So what are the the main factors? And surprisingly, other than vaccines, medicine and traditional institutions of of health like you know, going to the doctors, going to the pharmacy, um going to the hospital for something Medicine actually really didn't make much of a difference until the middle of the 20th century with the invention of antibiotics. So the big changes that we saw before then really came from infrastructure. So, you know, the invention of toilets and sewers and chlorinating drinking water. Those were big changes that that had to happen in the 19th century. Uh we had to figure out how to basically clean up the water supplies in big cities, which is an enormous problem, but it was an engineering problem as much as it was a a medical problem to solve and that had a big impact and then another thing that i think most people don't realize particularly in big cities 150 years ago one of the major killers of of young children was milk milk could be really deadly um you had you know contaminated milk supplies because you didn't have refrigeration milk could carry tuberculosis and so You had these terrible situations in New York there's something like 60% of all deaths were children in 1850 and milk was one of the big killers and it took both scientific breakthroughs and really political struggle and activism to change that so Louis Pasteur the famous chemist invented pasteurization in 1865 which solved the problem of making milk safe but it still took 50 years before pasteurized milk became standard in the United States in grocery stores because the science of pasteurization wasn't sufficient on its own you actually had to get this idea out there into the world you had to convince the milk industry to pasteurize the milk you had to pass laws mandating that milk was pasteurized you had to get consumers to buy into the idea that milk was you know better drunk at, in pasteurized form and so you know t- when you're trying to figure out like what really drives progress in in our history like this and extending our lives you have to look to the scientists that's a big part of it but you also have to look at those kind of muckrakers and activists who fought for these changes too Science isn't worth much if there's no one around to fight for it, right? Again, that was Stephen Johnson, the author of Extra Life: A Short History of Living Longer. Stephen will be back tomorrow to argue why we need memorials for the world's medical breakthroughs. How might you figure out whether a secret nuclear test has happened? It actually has nothing to do with radioactivity. Instead, it's all about a very peculiar kind of material, trinitite. And recently, scientists have made a big breakthrough in their analysis of a 76-year-old sample of this strange material. It came from the first nuclear bomb test site in New Mexico. In 1945, scientists detonated the first plutonium bomb, which was first placed on top of a 30-meter tower. That tower was full of sensors and equipment designed to take measurements as the bomb exploded. After the blast, the scientists found loads of a strange green glassy material that was the result of the sand being liquefied. They called it trinitite after the Trinity nuclear test. But some of the trinitite in a particular place was red, not green. It had a different chemical composition, too. The green trinitite is mostly silicon dioxide, quartz essentially, but red trinitite has copper and iron in the mix. 
It was a pretty weird set of elements to find in the desert sand. Turns out there was an unexpected culprit. The sensors and cables from the wiring setup, as well as the test tower itself. Those materials were mostly copper and iron. And as a result of the high-energy blast, they were fused into the red trinitite. And recently, scientists discovered that these particles also have a peculiar shape. They're icosahedrons, a 20-sided shape where each face is a triangle. Dungeons & Dragons fans will know that shape as a D20, or a 20-sided die. In science, these shapes are called quasi-crystals. Regular crystals are stacked in a lattice of regular rows and columns that follow certain rules of symmetry. Like, think of a cube. You can rotate a cube one quarter of a turn, and it looks the same. But quasi-crystals have a different sort of symmetry. In these quasi-crystals, rotating them one-fifth of a turn will make them look the same. That breaks the normal rules of crystal symmetry. Crystals can also completely fill three-dimensional space with their repeating lattice of atoms. But quasi-crystals leave spaces between them. Luckily, quasi-crystals have a cool quirk. They come with atomic sidekicks that fill the space between the quasi-crystal units. Altogether, they can fully fill a three-dimensional space. So far, scientists are just beginning to understand the extreme conditions that form quasi-crystals. This red trinitite is the oldest human-made quasi-crystal we know of, but natural quasi-crystals have been found in meteorites. By studying their unique properties, scientists can understand how extreme temperatures and pressures work to form exotic materials like quasi-crystals in the solar system and beyond. Let's recap the main things we learned today, starting with the fact that according to Stephen Johnson, it's harder to see progress in public health than it is to see progress in technology. That's because when medicine gets better, you see less of bad things happening, like people dying of deadly diseases. Even just 100 years ago, it was a lot more dangerous just to be alive. And we learned that as a species, our average life expectancy was around 35 years for pretty much all of human history. Although that average was mostly kept down by childhood mortality. It's not like a bunch of 35-year-olds were just keeling over. But today, global life expectancy is over 70. We've doubled the human lifespan in the period of about a century, thanks in large part to safe milk and clean drinking water. Yeah, one of the things Stephen told us was that, you know, nowadays... Being a kid, that's like the safest you're ever going to be, right? You got your mom and dad looking out for you and everything's built around keeping you safe. But for a lot of human history, that was the most dangerous time to be living. So that's something to be thankful for. It's the best time in history to be a kid right now. Something to remember the next time you get mad at your parents. (laughs) If you're listening to this and you're a kid, I know you're out there. You've got it made. Oh, my gosh. That's the most like a father that I've ever heard you sound, Cody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, appreciation for my parents was already high, but it has increased even more since I became a father. I'm sure. That might be part of the reason why so many parents are so excited when they realize they're going to have grandkids. Because part of them is probably just like, "Mm, now they're going to get it. (laughs) (laughs) We also learned that the first nuclear detonation created, quote unquote, impossible quasi-crystals shaped like 20-sided dice. Roll for initiative, am I right? Regular crystals are symmetrical when you turn them a certain way, but these crystals don't follow those rules. 
and scientists are studying their unique properties to better understand how extreme conditions can form exotic materials like this, both here on Earth and out in space. These 20-sided crystal dice absolutely have superhero origin story all around them, right? There was a nuclear thing, and there were a bunch of wires and things that weren't supposed to be there, and then they turned into these crystals. That's literally the Hulk, the Fantastic Four, when they got hit with cosmic rays. I'm just saying... I mean, there's probably a reason that so many of those comics, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, were written around the time of nuclear tests, right? Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Good talk. Good talk. The writer for today's last story was Brianna Brownell. Our managing editor is Ashley Hammer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Roll a D20 for an intelligence check and add a temporary plus five modifier for listening to this podcast. Then join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.